Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 76. It's March 10th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. The positional breakdown series is coming to a close on this episode. We'll talk about outfielders. If we need to extend into Thursday's episode, we'll do that. But we're going to try and cover everything we want to cover on today's show. If you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take the time to do that. We'd greatly appreciate it. It's one of the few ways you can really support our work. The other way you can do that, if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Thanks to the many of you who have signed up for The Athletic either in the last few weeks or even prior to the existence of this podcast. You know, how's it going for you on this Tuesday? Terrible. Terrible. I feel... Like butt. Feeling like butt is not a good feeling. This is an especially terrible time to feel like butt, though, because the looks you get, the... I was, like, literally talking to another parent at school today, and when I mentioned I was sick, they, like, took four steps away from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone's on high alert, and, and for good reason. I mean, it's it's nice to see people paying attention, right? It's good that people are aware of, of what's going on around them but uh yeah if you have a common cold right now you might be judged as though you have something worse that's just sort of the the nature of what we're we're dealing with right now so yeah at the time of this recording i mean it's tuesday morning on the west coast uh tout wars on for this weekend at this point we'll see how things progress here in the next couple of days but uh certainly a, a difficult time and, and obviously uh, we've heard the news in the last 24 hours that uh, all major sports have shut down locker room and clubhouse access temporarily to non-essential team members. That would include the media. So you know, that's changing coverage and different things. And uh, obviously people get pretty uh, upset about that for, for some obvious reasons. But anyway, we're going to talk about outfielders. We're going to get into it. We'll start right at the top with a very simple question. If you were to draw the first pick in your draft and you had your choice of Ronald Acuna, Mike Trout, and Christian Yelich, who do you actually take when you have to choose between the big three? Still Mike Trout for me. I have seen some stuff. Uh, I believe Ron Chandler talked about it, and some, uh, or maybe t- uh, Tony Blangino, actually. I think Tony Blangino talked about how Mike Trout is about to become uh, a more typical aging slugger. And he talked about how his fly ball rate went through the roof last year. And we've talked about, you know, how 50% fly balls is, was worrisome. Trout was at 49.2 last year. He only stole 11 bags, only took off 13. Those are both career lows for full seasons. And, you know, I could see, I could, you know, you could look up and see him become a little bit more vulnerable on the strikeout rate. He's had bigger strikeout rates in the past, and that's going to be where his decline, I think, comes into play, will be in the strikeout rates. So you could see some, you know, I don't know if it's next year or the year after, but you could see some 275, you know, 35 to 40 homer seasons. Um, that's still pretty good. Yeah, his floor is still ridiculously high. If you're going straight off the projections, I, I think they're still going to guide you to Mike Trout as the number one overall pick. I mean, his projection from the bat is still just ridiculous. 301, 438, 636, 48 homers. 15 steals, 117 RBIs, and 125 runs scored. Uh, based on that, I, I totally understand it. I think, well, I think where I get pulled into going to Acuna is thinking about it from a non-trade league perspective, and and knowing that coming back at the two-three turn, it's already becoming difficult to find 
great sources of stolen bases at the back part of the top 30 because guys like Starling Marte, who we'll talk about in a few minutes, gets pushed up the board a little bit in those formats. So in leagues where you have trades to get the bags you need, in leagues that aren't high-stakes leagues where everyone's not inflating the guys who run early, maybe there you do go the, the safer route with Trout at one. The thing about just projections is it's not just that Trout comes out first. Depending on which calculator you use, he comes out first by a lot. I did one run of the axe. I might have been for labor for AL only. I think he was at 52. It's nuts. $52. Like, And the next person was at 42. So a $10 difference at the top. And if you do the regular auction calculator, that doesn't seem very realistic, actually, though. Um, it just in terms of, like, he went for 43 or 44 in are in AL labor and Brett Sayre who, you know, helped develop the axe and, you know, worked on that and probably had those projections in front of him was in on him till 43, but out at 44, I think. So I, I just don't think that it was very realistic, but you know, even if you run the auction calculator from Fangraphs, it's, he's like two or $3 above the next one. So I think that's mostly from that floor, that floor bringing up. And also like, there wasn't there like a sort of an air of I want to get to 40-40 from Acuna last year? And like, what if he has 20 steals, you know, in the second half next year? Does he maybe not take off as often? Yeah, like if he can't reach that barrier, is he just going to say, okay, well, I'm not doing that. I'm going to... Just... Because there's not that much real-life value to the team. You know what I mean? No, and they're contending. And, and I think that's the thing that makes it so tricky to rely on you know, high-end steals from a guy who can do so many other things. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, Christian Yelich, though, 30 for 32 last year as a base stealer. I've actually got yeah, Yelich first. Massive knee injury. He's been fine this spring, though. He debuted on Friday. They just signed him to the extension. Has he attempted a stolen base? I think he's only played in two spring training games so far, so I don't think he's attempted one at this point. I would, wa- I would watch that. I would find that interesting, actually. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. I mean... Even if he cut that in half, like Yelich could run more like Trout. I think he can actually hang with him, though, in terms of batting average and power. I think the the run production is going to be a good question, too. I mean, I think that's where projections are definitely going to favor Trout. He's done it at that level for so long. Yeah. But I think, for me, Yelich is the guy I'm taking first, then Acuna, then Trout. But I'm thinking, again, about a non-trade scenario. Um, ideally, I just have the third pick, and I take whichever one's left, but I realize it's a cop-out, and you're only going to get the third pick, you know, 1-12 in 12 or 1-15 in 15 times, so it doesn't always work out that easily. Mm-hmm. But let's move on. Let's move through the rest of the first round quick. Uh, Cody Bellinger, Mookie Betts, the other uh, early first-rounders with outfield eligibility. We talked about Bellinger, I think, a little bit on the first base episode. I think he proved that 2018 was actually the outlier, and what we saw last year and in 2017, that's really his true talent level. Uh, do you buy into the batting average? I think we talked about this before. Like the K rate was down so much last year, it, it's hard. It's hard to think he's going to hit two sixty seven again in a season. Like he looks like a legit five category player as well, who could just as easily crack the big three in twenty twenty. Uh, I mean, he's got all the tools to do it. Yeah, I mean, there's a massive change in his ability to cover the entire plate. And uh, sort of a gelling of of two different approaches, so that now he can kind of slap the ball, the high ball, the other way, and and launch the low ball. 
which makes him just, uh, you know, along with his his good plate discipline, makes him a, a really fearful, fearsome hitter. So I, I, the only thing there with him is that like when you steal ten to fifteen bags, I feel like it's hard to gauge how long you're going to keep doing that. There are some guys. I th- I'm thinking of Chase Utley. Let me let me look at Chase Utley because. I, I remember Chase Utley being like, ah, oh, he's bone on bone in the knee. He's going to stop stealing bases. Uh, and, well, he did at the very end. But from 2010 to 2014, he basically averaged 10 stolen bases a year. Hmm. And I was already saying, oh, you know, he's, you know, the knees are bad. He's, he's not going to steal any bases. But he just stayed at 10 for a long time. Um, I forget who else. I guess Votto. I'd like to see what Votto's done. Because he, you know, he stopped making stolen bases a priority. Uh, yeah, and he's been around five for the last. So he used to be like, you know, he can get ten to fifteen from from Joey Votto, and then he just kind of went down to five. So I just feel like with Ballinger, he's a little bit even. He's like a little bit closer along the curve to being like what we talked about with Trout, like to being more like that. I mean, I know he's athletic, but in terms of what he does on the field um, and what he does for your fantasy team, I. I'd only bank on 10 steals next year. Yeah, I think he's lower end of where the the big three finish in that category, but I think the average can be there, the power can be there, the run production can be there in that lineup, in part because of Mookie Betts now being a part of the Dodgers lineup. Any adjustments for you with Betts moving out of the AL into the NL? I mean, do you change your expectations for him in any categories? Do you think he racks up a slightly lower total of plate appearances? Because of the pitcher spot in the NL, like, what is your adjustment, if any, for Mookie Betts in LA? I mean, I suppose he won't score 135 runs again, and that did help prop up an otherwise lackluster line for Mookie Betts. I mean, not for anybody else. But at the same time, you know, I know that that stadium is actually pretty good for for high drives, turning high drives into power. We've talked about that. So, you know, when he hits to to the green monster in Boston, like it turns the, those things into doubles half the time. You know what I mean? So there are probably some lost homers against the green monster that it'll turn into homers in, in, in LA. And you look at his projections, they run, they run from 30 to 34. Like I'll take the 34 actually. Uh, and in terms of stolen bases, like, you know, I don't know. The Dodgers are not really, you know, they don't really push it. But the National League game, because of that pitcher and just because of the the way the lineups aren't necessarily as stacked top to bottom, um, you know, maybe he gets a few more chances to steal bases. Uh, maybe there's a few more situations where it makes sense. So if you give him 20 stolen bases and, you know, 33, 34 homers, I think the decision between him and Ballinger is actually a pretty tough one. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, I think... It's a nice loaded first half of the round, and we talked about you know, maybe where you would take the first pitchers off the board: Garrett Cole, Jacob Degrom. It's probably after Bellinger and Betts are both there, like after they're both gone. Like once those two are gone, then I start pivoting to the pitching side. Uh, the other outfielder that we see in the first round, Juan Soto, and based on projections, I think the bat has him as the sixth most valuable outfielder. Uh, behind only the five guys we just talked about, so the ADP following that right now. It's really interesting to me, though, that Juan Soto is basically like a younger version of J.D. Martinez. You might get some steals uh, from Soto. You're probably not going to get any steals from J.D. at this point. So that's one of the differences 
do you think Juan Soto makes sense as a late first rounder at this point? Are you, are you buying those projections as, as stable at this point? I am, and it's mostly because of his elite play discipline uh, combined with really good, uh, with a really good hit tool. I think that he could be at risk of losing some power if the ball deflates a little bit because he does hit to the opposite field. And he did have a little bit of a leap in power if you just look at his ISOs from 2018 to 2019. Um, So I could see maybe him hitting only 30 homers. Um, But in that situation, everybody's hitting fewer homers. And um, his spray hitting still helps him you know, hit for batting average. And I feel like he's just got immense floor. I think he's, it's almost, in some ways, it's almost second to Trout in terms of floor. You know, I don't know the ceiling. The ceiling is there for Acuna and for the other guys. But in terms of floor, this guy just does everything right. You know what I mean? It's like, what's the worst he can do next year? I feel like the worst he could do next year is hit 290 with 28 homers and five steals. Yeah, that is a really nice floor. And we're talking about the worst. And that's you know, for a guy so. who's 21 years old. Yeah. Yeah, he's... Him and Acuna, I think, are probably 1-2 in terms of dynasty assets. Yeah, I think that probably makes sense at this point. I mean, you could... I, I think the steals are going to taper off for Yelich, even if it's not a big drop in 2020. We only have a few more years where he's going to be running anywhere near as much as he was running in 2019, especially. So you do have to look at that pretty carefully because Soto might be a top five player for the next five years with ease. Like that's the type of hitter that he is. And yet it feels like he's exceeding expectations relative to what people thought he might be as a prospect. Uh, but the next little chunk of outfielders are mostly like late second rounders where Bryce Harper, JD Martinez, uh, Starling Marte, they're all in that range. I think Starling Marte, as I mentioned just a little earlier, he's getting that extra category juice and steals. That's what's nudging his ADP up into that group. Harper and JD seem like really nice floor guys for late in the second round. I mean, especially even if you were coming back through in the middle of the round, if you started with a pitcher to build around one of Harper or JD as your first bat, seems like a nice foundation. Yeah, we're in that Raz Slam. Are you in that Raz Slam? Yeah, I'm in the Raz Slam. We're slamming. We're slamming the Raz. Um, That was such a... I don't know what that means. Is, is that like the, the next iteration of this slaps? <laughs> yeah, right. Which I don't even want to say, like, because I don't I don't want to ruin that one. Like, if I start saying it, I'm the beginning of the end of cool language. <laughs> and and my wife has an uncle who is the end of that process. Oh. Like, when it gets to him, it's over. I, I, <laughs> the, the definitive end. <laughs> he's one of my favorite people, but once once lingo or a joke reaches him, that is when I know it is officially over. I have over. to stop saying that. All right, so I got oh I got Jordan Alvarez round two, Bryce Harper round three, um, and I'm I'm on the turn, so that's round two, twelve, round three, one, uh, Alvarez Harper, um, and Springer almost no Springer didn't get back to me, but in another league I got I got Springer in the third. Uh, to me, uh, Harper was a 12, 12 team, um, like basically end of second rounder, and I felt good about that. Um, I, I feel good about his chances to uh, do a little better in a second year in a new situation with Kutch back, you know, the rest of the lineup there, not necessarily protecting him, but having ducks on the pond. 
um, you know, making uh, pitchers just a little bit more nervous. Um, and uh, so I like Springer and Harper. I don't love Marte and Blackman at their ages um, and at their draft positions. Um, but then I come back around um, after, you know, those groups. And there's two droppers, Eddie Rosario and Marcelo Zuna, that continually drop every year and just seem to give up really steady production. Yeah, I I think I I get kind of twisted on the old boring players. Um, like Blackman is a guy I actually kind of do like because I'm not really expecting steals anymore. I mean, the park just gives him an amazing floor. Springer seems fairly priced. I, I don't think we have to ding him a ton for the sign stealing scandal. Maybe you want to just shy away from Astros really early because you're afraid of the, the hit by pitches and you're afraid that being the villains of the league might take a toll on, on players. Like that could happen. Also, he's 30. Yeah. And, you know, he probably just had his peak season. Right. I, I, and that's what I said, I think, at the time when, when the scandal news first broke is that George Springer was a guy that we would have been regressing anyway coming off of last season. He went from being undervalued last year to maybe a tick overvalued, but I think he's pretty close to his fair uh, market price right now in terms of where he's being drafted in that 40 to 45 range. Uh, but that next tier that you were referring to, you know, where Marcelo Zuna, Nick Castellanos, Eddie Rosario, even Michael Conforto, they all live there. Those are all players that I could see going a little bit earlier next year. Maybe Rosario's kind of topped out where he's at, but it seems like Ozuna's a little underpriced right now. He's in a slightly more hitter-friendly environment. Castellanos is in a great spot, I and mean, this is the most hitter-friendly park he's ever been in, having played most of his career in Detroit and then a little bit in Wrigley Field last year. And then I still see that extra level potential with Michael Conforto. Uh, generally, that group doesn't steal bases, but I think they can be pretty close to what you're going to get from Blackman and Springer at prices that are 40 to 50 picks later in most rooms. So I think the best argument against Blackman and Springer is the presence of that next tier of guys that are sitting out there a few rounds later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, Rosario and Ozuna just, they drop forever. I I need to get the ADP up. But, uh, uh, you know, Rosario for uh, the last three years has averaged 280 with 28 homers. And I know homers, you know, aren't as useful anymore uh, because everybody's doing them. But, uh, you know, the 280 is. And 28 at least keeps you afloat, if not, you know, a little bit positive in that category. So, you know, to to where he's going, Rosario is going ninety one. Uh, well, you know, okay, that's I guess decent. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume. Oh, there was Azuna ninety six. But compared to other outfielders like Jorge Soler going before them, Jorge Soler's floor is pretty low, considering the strikeout rate has has oscillated pretty badly, and he's striking out a lot in the spring. And I've never watched a Jorge Soler bat and thought this guy can see spin. Yeah, this, this guy looks like he's in control up there. That's that's not yeah. that's not an assessment you've made of Jorge Soler. No, it is not. Um and then Joey Gallo, I think we've seen that he could hit 205 this year. Uh as much as he does other things that are good, that that he's going ahead of him. Um and then, you know, yes, Tommy Pham should go ahead, but Tommy Pham's going 75. So, Tommy Pham at 75 uh, I know he he steals some bases, so he's getting that bump. But I think Jorge Soler 
uh, at 86, whereas Rosario at 91, and Azuna all the way down to 96, 10 picks later. And if you're looking at the three of those around 86, I think you could say, I'm going to let it ride, and worst case scenario, get Azuna back. And uh, Ozuna's max pick is 149, uh, whereas Rosario's is 129, and Jose Soler's is 128. So there's a lot of leagues where Marcelo Zuna is the one you get, and the the prize that you get uh, for Marcelo Zuna is a guy who's averaged 280 with uh, 30 homers over the last three years. And um, I also did a little bit of a query where I just looked at first half versus second half uh, reach rates. And the five biggest improvers in the second half last year in reach rate were Yasmani Grandal, Yasiel Puig, rest in peace, Manuel Margot, J.D. Martinez, Marcelo Zuna. Um, and if you just combine that with looking at his splits uh, for the second half, uh, his second half, he uh, did not hit well in terms of BABIP, uh, but uh, you know his, his walk-to-strikeout rate was 14% to 20%. Um, and uh, I think that could, uh, that could help him a lot in terms of adding on to the fact that he's going to the, the, the friendliest home stadium he's ever been to. Um, so you add the best walk rate, uh, versus strikeout rate of his career with the new stadium. Uh, there is some upside. It's not just boring veteranness. There is some actual upside, you know, and I'm, I'm going to wait around and, and if he's the worst case scenario, then I'm, I'm into it. The thing I like about the outfield is that you can wait a while and you could still fill categorical needs in pretty much any of the five rotisserie categories, even outside the top 100 overall. That's the thing I like about the outfield. There's so many different types of players you can get in the middle and late rounds. Uh, there is a cluster we should talk about right around pick 75 in terms of March ADP. You mentioned Tommy Pham before. He's kind of in the 75 to 80 range, probably because of concern uh, with the elbow injury that popped up again this spring that slowed him down at the end of last season as well. So you got Pham kind of bunched up with Luis Robert. Uh, surprisingly, his ADP has stayed in this range. I think it's going to shoot up as we get closer to the end of March. But you have Pham, Robert, Victor Robles, and Ramon Laureano. Five outfielders you look at, and you could see contributions maybe in every category from all of these guys. I think there's uh, some risk for a low batting average in year one from Luis Robert. I think there are questions about Victor Robles' power. Uh, I would say of all those players, because of Pham's injury, Loreano looks like he might be the safest right now. But they're all interesting. And maybe double tapping and getting two in this range might be the way to go. Uh, where do you stand on, on this group? Is this a group of players that you generally like? Is there anyone that really stands out to you as a particularly good value from that cluster? I just want to point out that ATC has Ramon Loreano uh, worth... Five dollars less than Fam, Robles is sandwiched in between, and Marcelo Zuna as worth another two dollars more than Fam. Uh, just thought that was an interesting thing to point out. Otherwise, I would say you know obviously Robles's speed is the safest, but in terms of boom or bust, uh, I actually see it a little bit differently. Loriano's safest in terms of his power, you know, his batting average, run production. I think all those are probably safer than Robles who may end up at the top of the lineup or at the bottom of the lineup, uh, depending on how he hits and how the season goes. Fam, who seems like at a risk for, you know, 
possibly missing half the season with shoulder, with elbow injury because he's he's got a tear in that elbow ligament um, and also steals bases at a, at a level where, you know, a five to ten bag drop is fairly significant. All of a sudden, he's just a guy who gives you a few stolen bases as opposed to someone who you can depend on. But I want to mention that the Axe has Loriano with 25 stolen bases, which seems like a reach to me. But if you give Loriano 25 stolen bases, he's the best of these of this group. He's a great defender, too, which continues to drive playing time. I think the biggest question that I have with Loriano is where does he actually settle in to the A's lineup? You know, I think there's a chance Victor Robles moves up to the leadoff spot. We talked about that previously as uh, his driving factor in terms of what brings him upside is the possibility for more runs scored and growth as a hitter. He's also very young, missed a good chunk of 2018 with a knee injury. Loriano, I think, could end up hitting low in the order, just like I expect Luis Robert to be low in the order, at least for this season. Fam by projections does make the most sense here. It's purely a health question for Tommy Fam. Like I'm not worried about the skills at all at this point. Yeah, yeah. He's he he. You know, what he reminds me of statistically. I think it's like it's a perfect comp. Can you guess? It's perfect. <sighs> a current player, like their careers. A little different, but there's like a five-year level where like they're the exact same player. Mm, Charlie Blackman, Shin Su Chu. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that is that is a good statistical comp because yeah, you get a little bit of everything. You get a good OBP to go with it too. Like, that's Even the thing the that stands out. Bigger ground ball rates than than fly ball rates. The sort of twenty twenty esque stuff. The the really good OBP. Um. Which is interesting because Shinsu Chu only did that until he was that before he signed that big contract. The Rangers stopped stealing bases, uh, but he did it from 2019 to 2013. Uh, 2013, he was 31. Hmm. Uh, Fam is 32. Fam has a bit of a a chip on his shoulder though and he hasn't gotten that contract right like if he signs that contract i feel like maybe he stops doing basis but until then uh he's doing everything he can to to increase his value so yeah that, that's long been the appeal of tommy fam he absolutely has a chip on his shoulder he felt like the cardinals kept him in the slow cooker at triple a far too long and he was mashing there and not getting opportunities i think he's always been mad about that and i think he's right to be mad about that just like you said, like Chu signs a big contract, he goes from 21 stolen bases to four in the next year. And I don't think that's necessarily Chu saying, you know, like, oh, I got my money, I'm done, stolen bases. But it's a combination of that and the new team saying, hey, we just signed to a long-term contract and we kind of did it for OBP and power. So, you know, we don't really need those extra 16 stolen bases. And... I think for Chu, it's 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 generally worked. Like he's thirty seven years old, and you know he just came off a season where he was twelve percent better than the average. Like some people might say that contract was too much money and for too long, because the defense ended up going south on him and he ended up being a DH. But in terms of being a good bat, he's been above average every year and every year of the uh, the contract, and he's averaged around ten to fifteen percent better than the average. That's I mean I don't think that I don't think that's that bad of a signing. No, very steady player and, and a guy we'll probably mention again at the end of the pod when we're talking about some late options because the price is still really low. Even if you have to bring down his power projection as a result of the changes to the ballpark in Arlington, 
that's still a really nice floor player. And I think the Willie Calhoun injury uh, even like further stabilizes Chu's role. Like I, I don't think there's as much playing time downside. Where I don't how long he'll be out. He with a broken face. It sounds pretty bad. I mean, it, he's going to be reevaluated in two weeks, but mm. I that. That just means they can't really tell how bad the damage is right now, which is really unfortunate because... Oh, my God. And Nick Solak. Oh, yeah. Nick, Nick Solak. So, I think Solak's going to play more directly in left field. He's, he's like, yeah. the guy that plays with his own position now with Calhoun out. And Ruden Odor, who I think was really on notice to begin the season when everybody was healthy, he now has a little wow. more room... I think he still has the month and a half because if like if Willie Calhoun comes in comes back like you know three four weeks into the season, which I I doubt, even with a broken jaw, like I doubt it's much longer than that. So you know if he comes back in with you know three to four weeks in the season, then Solak's looking for a job somewhere, and Odor's hitting one ninety. Yeah. Yeah, there's still still a path for him to lose the job, but I, I just think the it does probably give him it gives him like a week or two more breather probably. Yeah, I just, I'd be surprised if we saw Willie Calhoun back before mid-May, and I would not be surprised if it was like a half season. I mean, he, really? concussion fractures, it all depends on the extent of the damages to the bones in his face. He does have screws in his face. Yeah, you know, so that that's going to take. You have to have time. another surgery to get the screws out sometimes. The other thing, too, I mean, we always have to worry about this when a player gets hit like that is you just might not be the same player in the box initially. Like There's a big mental hurdle to overcome after a traumatic injury like that. We saw it with Jason Hayward. I mean, at least it seems like a part of what made Hayward so different was getting hit in the face with a pitch uh, years ago. It's really hard to quantify, obviously, but it's just something that you have to at least think about when it comes to to Willie Calhoun. Uh, some other early thoughts. A couple quick questions for you. Is the discount on Aaron Judge enough? His ADP since March 1st is pick 75. He's got the stress reaction on his ribs. His timetable's a little bit up in the air as well. I kind of feel like if you're going to take any injured players that early, you're really taking on a lot of unnecessary risk. But if he's only out for a few weeks after the season begins and he comes back and he's the Aaron Judge we expected the payoff could be pretty big. So I understand why people would want to take this risk, but is that enough of a discount to do it? That's really interesting because his projection with 524 plate appearances, which I don't think maybe that's conservative. Maybe that's too low, but I wouldn't buy much higher than that. Uh, his projection is actually well, for by ATC is pretty boring. $13. He's between Trey Mancini and Michael Brantley. What's Trey Mancini's ADP? He was inside the top 100. I think he might be slipping right now a little bit, but Mancini, 114 since March 1st. So that's weird. So you might actually be overpaying. Uh, the ATC's projection is for 33 homers in, in the 524 plate appearances too, so it's not, it's not like it's a terrible projection or something. It's actually probably the best projection out of the four in terms of what he'll do. And the other the other five have less playing time, so I, I actually think maybe the seventy five is not discounted enough. Yeah, I, I I would like him to fall more if I'm going to do it. And I think again, I, I'm very NFBC centric in my mindset. A lot of the leagues I commission don't have IL spots either. Playing short is difficult, and as more injuries pile up throughout the rest of the draft season and into the beginning of the season, 
the roster crunch you feel becomes uh, more intense when you've already got one big piece locked into a spot. So if you do it, I think you want more of a discount. And if you do it, it's just Aaron Judge. It's not I'm taking Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton. Like I, you just can't do that. You can't load up on injured players and hope that they all come out just completely healthy at the end of all this. Uh, two guys that we kind of glazed over a bit earlier. Uh, two surprises from last year. Austin Meadows and Cattell Marte. Very different players doing it different ways. Marte has the better projection based on the bat. Uh, it looks like a totally different player, too. Our, our friend uh, Chris Welsh was at d camp recently, and he said it looked like Marte added another 15 pounds of muscle. <laughs> he just, he's that much bigger. So the stolen bases are, are probably you know, capped at what we saw last year. If he gets 10 bags again, great. Did you see enough positives from him last year with the increased fly ball rate, more hard hit balls to believe that he can sustain something close to 2019 as his new baseline and, and justify being taken in the first three rounds? I mean, he basically doubled his barrel rate and I believe in barrel rate, his expected batting average is 299. So even though there's a regression there, you know, it's not to a, a really low percentage. That was top 6% of the league. His expected Wobo is top 3% of the league. You know, well, I'm not all the way there on expected Wobo for pitchers, especially on pitch types and stuff like that, because we haven't really seen anybody prove that it's useful. But it is more useful for hitters. And in terms of describing what he did, it was not completely very, it was not completely lucky. You know, he like deserved a lot of what he did. Uh, but that being said, I was surprised to see Austin Meadows has both a barrel better better barrel rate and a uh, better uh, exit velocity than Cattell Marte. So maybe that's just a function of age or whatever. But, uh, you know, Austin Meadows has a 12.5% barrel rate to Cattell Marte's 9.3. 90.4 exit velocity to Cattell Marte's 89.8 a higher slugging, expected slugging percentage. His expected slugging percentage was 547, top 10% of the league. He had a 558 in reality. Um, and he, uh, like, he's, didn't he steal more bases? Yeah, 12 bags for Meadows. I think he was caught a lot, though, too. I feel like he was like 12 for 19, kind of trying to pull that off of memory in terms of the caught stealing. So I thought I remembered... Um, Dusty Wagner and Paul Sporer talking about that earlier this winter that they were maybe worried that Meadows won't have as many green lights. Yeah. Which it's possible, right? Like if you're that good of a hitter and you know, teams just say, you know what? You're not that efficient as a base dealer and we don't want you sliding head first in the second base. It's not worth it. That could get shut down. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, the profile doesn't scream like he needs to steal a lot and, uh, his sprint speed percentile ranked last year was 78. So it's not like, oh, he's a burner and he's got to go, you know? No. So I, as I look at Meadows, I, at the 2-3 turn is where he often goes. ADP right around pick 30. I think it's an appropriate price. I don't know if he's going to get a whole lot better than what he was last year. So that might be the the thing I look at and say, yeah, I want someone who runs a bit more. Or I want something else in that spot. But I understand why he's there. I'm not worried about a collapse with him. I think the underlying numbers do support uh, what he did. And the same holds true for for Ketel Marte. I mean, I think there's more skepticism when a player's in the league for a few years before doing that. Whereas with Meadows, it was really his first full season at the big league level. People are quick to jump on board there. 
Uh, with Cattell Marte, though, you are getting a sub-15% strikeout rate. It's been under 15% in each of the last three seasons, including the big breakout power year a year ago. So, And I would also mention that Cattell Marte would probably play second base for me. I don't know if I'm having a freak out or something, but like second base freaks me out. No, it's bad. We, it, I, I saw the chart that, that Zola put up. At first pitch, Florida. Uh, when Owen Poindexter was showing us the shape of each position yeah. a couple weeks ago, I think that's very real. Having gone through a few drafts and auctions now, and uh, different formats too, I've seen it play out. The late options at second base are very much uninspiring. Uh, it's amazing how it, it pales in comparison to the depth at shortstop. Where I think I've said this on the show before, you can go with a shortstop as your middle infielder and your utility this year and not look like a dummy. Like that's how good the pool of shortstops is. Yeah. How deep that and, pool know, is. I think it actually makes some sense in terms of like how re- real baseball is played and how real baseball teams are put together. There's actually something to be said for this mirroring real baseball because what do you do when you have a hot athlete, just a, this, a like a top top prospect, a guy who can hit and do everything and looks the part? You put him at shortstop, right? And that's where you put your best athlete. That's where you put your best player, basically. And what do you do at second base? You find a guy. In a related matter, I played second base and right field when I, in my last year of my playing career because <laughs> they were just like he can't hurt us as much over there. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, second base is where you find a guy, you put a guy, um, and it's not necessarily where you where you have a star. And I think that actually kind of is true over the history. It's just that there was a period of time where. We had, I think, maybe like the steroid ever, basically, where we had yoked up the, the the typical second baseman to the point where you know Brett Boone was like a was like a decent play, and this, the position didn't look so bad, you know. But now we're back to you know, I think the reality of the situation. Even if you're running a major league team, is you're probably just putting a guy at second. Yeah, I, I think that has become a position, especially with shifting where teams are increasingly comfortable hiding a guy with limited range or maybe uh, the dreaded bricks for hands and noodle arm, <laughs> as you've said with Nick Solak. Really, really want you to make that into a character someday. Uh, let's talk about Andrew Benintendi for a moment. High expectations for him last year. Heavily discounted price, right around pick 100 in terms of his March ADP to this point. Average exit velocity kind of leveled off at 88.6. It was only 0.2 miles per hour above where he was in 2018. K rate went up a little bit. He still drew walks, but it was just kind of an underwhelming season. 13 homers, 10 steals. Run production wasn't very high. A disappointment across the board, but do you see a bounce back coming from Andrew Benintendi, even if he splits the difference between his 2019 cost and his 2020 cost in terms of what he's actually returning value-wise this season? It's amazing. The distance between very top prospect and superstar in the league is just a chasm, man. Andrew Benintendi, we were at, what is the, what's that field in Staten Island? We were at the Staten Island Yankees, I think. Yeah. Their, their field. And I was talking to a PR guy that worked there, and he said he'd, he'd only seen one player hit the ball into the water. Because the, the water is like, you're up against the water, but the water is like another, 
I don't know, 30, 40 feet. Like there's, there's like a fair amount of concourse out back there where you can just hang out and then there's water. And he's only seen one person hit the ball so far that went into water and it was Andrew Benintendi. And, you know, I think when he was coming up, everyone was like, oh my God, 30, 30 is a possibility. This guy can run, this guy can feel, this guy can throw, this guy can hit, you know, and he can do everything. And he gets to the major leagues. And right now his speed percentile last year was 54. That's like I thought he was good, super yeah. fast. Yeah, I thought he was too. Um he was at 68th percentile in 2018. I mean, he, he fell off pretty hard. There were some was injuries last when he first year. first came into the league too. I think he did, I think he played hobbled. So I think the thing that stands out to me though for all the things that went wrong, the barrel rate did tick up a little bit last year. That makes me a little bit intrigued that he could get to some more power this year. But the average launch angle was 17.3, meaning that he's really you know, really trying to lift the ball and to almost to his detriment, if you have an 8% bell rate and a 17.3% launch angle, I mean, you're really, you know, like you're really pushing it. There's some guys who have like 20 and stuff, but usually they have, you know, that dreaded 50% fly ball rate. So, I mean, I know what he's trying to do and I, and I, I don't want to be too out on a guy at 25. Like the peak year could be, could happen any moment. And maybe he puts together a 10% barrel rate with 65 percentile speed sprint speed and, you know, hits you 25 homers with 15 bags. We know that he has good hit tool and that he should be able to hit around two, 280. That would be his peak year. I think 280, 25, and 15. That's totally possible. Good player. Probably a 75 to 80th percentile outcome for this, from this year. If he did that, that would drive him up probably to like a third or fourth round value. So, so not, it, it, there's no reason to be totally out on him. No, especially when you're talking about a guy who goes in the seventh or eighth round now. Right. So you're talking about him or Conforto. Conforto's currently hurt. Um, you're, he's behind Mancini. Like, I could actually see picking him over Mancini because Mancini's just like kind of a boring slugger type. Those guys do seem to grow on trees a little bit. Um, I think as you move in even to the back of like the top 200, you can still find players with that skill set capable of matching that production. He's talking about trying to lift the ball. And honestly, if he could lift the ball better, Mancini, then he could hit 45 homers. Um, but uh, so there's not, he's not like he's without upside. But we're all chasing steals. And uh, Benintendi at 106 or Mercado with a sprained wrist at 115. Easy call for me, Benintendi, at this point. I think so. I mean, I, they are pretty seems similar like a players. a better player all around, too. A little a little more polished at this point. But I, I think yeah. those two are pretty similar. I think the the peak season you described for Benintendi, I think Could that's in the range of Mercado's peak seasons. Yeah, I, I yeah. think having gone through it, having failed, having played a bit hurt last year. Yeah, and you're also going currently hurt versus currently healthy. Um, and I'm not saying that Mercado is going to deal with this all season, but he could. Yeah, uh, it's the kind of thing if he comes back too quickly, he could have a setback. Uh, it's just easy easy to aggravate stuff like that when it's it's part of, of hitting. It's a really interesting po- moment in ADP, though. I just want to point out that most people are going for pitching in this, in this group. Exactly, yeah. From like 101 and Sonny Gray down to uh, Danny Santana at 127. So, yes, you take Benatani over Santana every day of the week, I think. Um, between those guys, it's like 80% P. Well, there's so much of a, of a 80% P 20% poo. 
Uh, no, <laughs> That's the, a terrible uh, mix. Yeah. Those are. <laughs> if, if, if the only thing between two players is a series of body secretions, that's bad. <laughs> Take the player. No, uh, I think it's. I think it's an interesting thing because there is a, a sort of up and down that happens. Ooh, Heimer Candelario goes deep. I like that. <laughs> I love. I love spring training randomness when we're recording. Yeah. Uh, I, what happens is, so there's a lot of people going for two aces or, or, or trying to get the two, two top pitchers, right? If you try to get the two top pitchers, then you need to come back and get a lot of hitters. So you see these, these P's at the top and then there's like a lot of position players. And it seems like the moment where, you know, uh, around 50, you know, uh, Corbin, Sale, Giolito, Kershaw, Nola, those are people picking their first ace or they're trying to pick two of those because they didn't get two of the first group, right? And so a lot of times I've jumped in and gotten like Nola Paddock, right? That's 51-53. So that's, that's me sometimes coming back in. And then there's the other people that did it, uh, the P's at, at like 20, uh, 20 and 15. But no matter who you are, you kind of at 100 want to come back to the table for a pitcher. Yeah, I, I think there are so many interesting names in that range. That's why you're kind of steering away from a player like Ben Benintendi, not because you don't necessarily believe in him, but because the needs and some of the drop-offs after that range of pitching, I think is pretty significant. I think you end up with guys that come with a lot more skills risk. You end up with guys that maybe don't bring quite as much ceiling. I mean, there's a handful of guys in that 150 to 200 range every year who pop up and become top 50 players the following year. But you can also go extreme the other way. I think I've made it a Shane Bieber versus Nick Pavetta sort of thing. Like a year ago, that was the toss-up you might have had in that 150 range. If you picked Bieber, you did great. If you picked Pavetta, not so much. If you picked them both, well, you did okay because you still had one really good player, and as long as you didn't hang out at Pavetta too long, it all kind of worked out. But I do think but pivoting to other positions is definitely going to happen in that range. One thing that could be fun is if you have three before 100, you can take off at 100. And yes, it might cost you Mike Soroka, who's in this group. It might cost you Carlos Carrasco, uh, Frankie Montas, and Zach Wheeler in this group. But you know what? If you have three pitchers in hand, those three pitchers, you know, could be less exciting to you than getting a Benintendi, you know, at 110 or 120 or something. His max bid is 155. So, you know, there, there are other players here. So you could get Carlos Correa. He's ADP's at 99. His max is 154. You could get Mike. So you could come through this, and instead of taking the pitchers like everybody else, you could come through like, you know, a two-round thing or three-round thing and come out with Carlos Correa, Mike Moustakas, and Andrew Benintendi. Whereas other people came out with, um, you know, Rysel Iglesias and Frankie Montas. I think it's something that Batflip Crazy on Twitter has been doing pocket aces. If you go pocket aces, you're going to load up with bats in this range. These are the types of bats you're going to be pushing, hoping that they return early round value. And that's a way to build a team that can absolutely work. So it just, it really, it really just depends on the health of your, your two aces. I mean, look at Justin Verlander. They're, yeah. They're crumbling every day. Max Scherzer's got a side thing right now. So that's, that's making me real happy. Oh, really? That's him. Yeah. That sucks. Cause of the, the, the back thing before. Yep, that is uh, definitely a concern. But yeah, these are the types of hitters you are probably concentrating on in these rounds if you've gone aggressive with pitching early on. You might be looking at closers in that range, though, too. 
The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out, they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible, unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code DRAFT. That's theblacktux.com with the code DRAFT for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Let's talk about some outfielders going outside the top 40 at the position because that's where things really get fun. And I hinted at it a bit earlier, you know, there's a bunch of players that, that go in this range who can do everything. And even top before you get there. Top 140 overall? Well, like out, top 40 at the position? I guess we'll say outside the top 30 at the position because that's kind of where we left it uh, before. Uh, Benintendi was 30 by ATC. So. Yeah, yeah. So you get to get to the Fran Mil Reyes, Oscar Mercado, Michael Brantley, Kyle Schwarber, Max Kepler, David Dahl range. I mean, there's, there's something to like about just about all those players. Like Mike, Michael Brantley... If, if Tommy Pham's not the most underpriced outfielder this season, it's Michael Brantley, right? I mean, why is he going at pick 130? How is he not a, a top 75 player? Yeah, and he's such a, a steady productor, producer. Productor? He's such a steady productor. <laughs> uh, and the thing, that I, the thing that has gotten me is that, you know, I heard at some point that his ankle was all gobbled up and he'd never play again. And then the Indians gave him another year and in 2018, and he had a 124 WRC plus and hasn't, you know, then he, the last two years he's had 1,200 plate appearances. You know, I think that being able to DH some has, uh, has am I making that up? I think with Alvarez there, he doesn't get the DH a lot, but they That's do true. have the option. I'm seeing 129 in the outfield, 148 overall. Eh, it's not a lot of DHing. Um, well, I don't know. I, I just know that he's got elite uh, hit hitting tool hitter toolishness. And for this piece that was coming up that I, that I'm that I'm publishing tomorrow, it looks like we talked to Trevor Bauer about different things he could do against hitters, and he talks about how he has to do like the most radical sequencing he can think of to to mess with Brantley and Brantley will still fist a single or or leg out a double and and Bauer will feel like he won because <laughs> he limited him to a single yeah so he just said he's such a such an amazing hitter he was talking about throwing three straight changeups to Brantley and he's, he's I haven't thrown three straight changeups all year and then in the next at bat he threw two backfoot sliders, and he's like, "That's not my thing. I don't do backfoot sliders." Uh, of course, that means that you're stretching your command, your limits of your command, and so you're gonna you're gonna leave one somewhere where you don't want to, and Brantley still wins. 
so he's such an excellent thinker and, uh, you know, I can put bat on the ball so well uh, that it just puts all pitchers, you know, on their back foot and kind of uh, makes them feel like they're going to make a mistake. Plus, in an era where, like, the average batting average, league average batting average is like 250 or something, uh, to have a guy who's hit 309 and 311 over the last couple of years is is just very useful. And, we, you know, you could pair him with Joey Gallo uh, right here and come out with a guy who hits 260, you know, you two guys that average 260 with, you know, 35 homers and, and 10 steals each or something. Yeah, it's a, it's a really nice way to go. I think that's the key to Gallo in general is just making sure you pair him with the right type of player. Brantley's one of the few players that you can get a bit later than Gallo who actually does that job really effectively. Uh, these guys are all pretty similar. Franmil Reyes, uh, Kyle Schwarber, like those two guys are almost identical in terms of yeah. the profile. Like if if Trey Mancini's not that high above those guys, but uh, playing time is not really a concern for for either one of them. I think there's a little bit of batting average downside, but mostly it's just big power production. I think Schwarber is actually still somehow a little bit underpriced. Like maybe I've always just been the Schwarber guy, but I don't see why you'd would prefer Trey Mancini to Kyle Schwarber outside of home park, maybe. And now I realize Mancini's got a health issue he's dealing with. But prior to that, especially, it just didn't make sense to me that there'd be a preference for Mancini oh. in that situation. ATC has Schwarber uh, worth like 50 cents less than Ben Attendee, and Schwarber's going 144. Ah, one thing is we're using NFBC ADP, and there is a little bit of weakness for Schwarber, which is how often he plays. Yeah, that kind of went away a little bit last year. I wonder if that holds up. I mean, defense wasn't quite as bad for him. So I think that was part of it, too. We saw him get to 155 games, 610 played appearances. 610 played appearances. It's not, you know, it's not not 700, and that might be his cap. But And all the projections actually have him for, for doing less than 600 played appearances. But, you know, his uh, his defense didn't keep him off the field. It wasn't, it's not like bottom 10 type defense, so. Yeah, but Reyes' projections are so similar. Like 250s batting average, 30-plus homers, 90 runs driven in, you know, 575-plus plate appearances. Uh, he's ripping the cover off the ball this spring, too. And he's too. going 139 to Schwarber's 144. I mean, if you leave, if you want some power production because you went for steals pretty early, uh, you can leave those two on the board, uh, you know, in about the 8th or ninth round and just, you know, wait until... You can't wait no more, you know? Yeah, and I think they are they're good reasons you know, to not necessarily invest in Jorge Soler, who we kind of talked down oh. earlier, right? Like, if you see Schwarber I there 50 picks later, Soler. we have Jeez. to be, because I just don't think he can bring... So much helium on that price. Yeah, like, everyone's buying last year like he's going to repeat it, and I think the track record of injuries especially is concerning when it comes to oh, Soler. Yeah. Uh, Max Kepler is the other guy who's very similar, I think, in terms of the profile now, and little less raw power, but I just believe in what the Twins have done with their hitters. Like I think they are very solid now as an organization. Low average, big pop, good run production. I think the stolen bases are officially bye-bye. He's got five in 15 attempts now in the last two seasons. So it's like uh, someone's probably in his ear saying, hey, you're really not good at this, so just don't do it at all. <laughs> let's, just, let's just go to zero attempts, but... Nevertheless, I mean, over 90 in terms of the, the runs and the RBIs. Uh, what's not to like? I mean, and, and the fact is, he only struck out 16.6% of the time. He's had a two-year run with a K rate under 20%, which 
uh, has really been kind of that extra little lift. Like he's put the ball in the air more in back-to-back seasons. I, I think he fits in this group, but I think he is third in terms of how you'd rank Schwarber, Reyes, and Kepler. There is something that I don't like. There is something I don't like. And it pains me to say it about a, a fellow German. Uh, what I don't like is that something like 80% of his home runs come right down the line. Mm. It just strikes me as a bit of like a D.D. Gregorius situation where you like him if everything remains the same. The minute something is different, you kind of want to be out. And he's pushing that fly ball rate, and at some point he's going to push it too far, especially given uh, his intrinsic you know, uh, stat cast power level, if you know what I'm saying. So as you raise your launch angle, you get further away from your maximum exit velocity launch angle. Everyone has a kind of a maximum exit velocity launch angle that is usually somewhere between like 5 and, and 10, 12 degrees. And this is not helping. I just didn't realize he was pulling the ball that much. 53.4% yes. pull rate overall. So he's just pulling it right down the line to hit home runs. And in terms of you know his stat cast, 89.7 exit velocity, 8.9% barrel, 18 you know degree launch angle. You know it, it's um, it reminds me a little bit of Benintendi, where you're like, whoa, like you're gonna have an 18 degree launch angle and only eight percent eight percent barrels. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up with Kepler because I I did not notice just how extreme that approach was, and that just puts a huge cap on his batting average too. Like there's yes a, a pretty low batting average floor with all three of these Lefty guys who pulls the ball fifty percent of the time. Yeah, but yeah, he's going to be heavily shifted and flying out a ton. You could you could see him lose twenty or twenty five points in batting average and, and still get to the power for the most part. Um, so maybe and his I am out on does Kepler not suggest now. that he's going to have great batting averages. Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely missed that in the profile. In fact, it's kind of it's kind of amazing that he hits two fifty two, right? Uh, he's never had a good Babbitt because he hits the ball in the air and he doesn't hit it that especially hard. Uh, he hits two fifty two. It's his career high last year, and every projection system says he's going to hit better next year. Yeah, when he's for four years in a row hit worse, or three years in a row hit worse. So let me just tell you, I'm not buying the projection system's batting averages. Yeah, maybe that's where I got a little bit tricked was just kind of seeing where he was placed compared to, you know, Reyes and, and Conforto and Schwarber and the guys that I, I do generally like. He compares very favorably in the projections, but are the projections missing the way he gets there? Are they missing the same thing I missed when it comes to the extreme pull tendencies? Yeah, I don't know that uh, horizontal like pull percentages are in most uh, projection systems. I, we do We have talked about how the bat regressed the league home run environment. So it's not surprising to me that the bat has them hitting only 28, but um, you know, they're all, you know, they're all regressing his Babbitt or progressing his Babbitt. However you want to say positive regression. They're all saying that like his Babbitt should progress closer to league average, but with a career Babbitt of 253 and of 244 last year with a career high fly ball rate, I don't see that Babbitt moving that much. I also wonder, yeah, he he actually hits a decent number of infield fly balls, too. Yeah, because that's the difference. That's what that's the difference between when you look at someone who, who has an 18% launch angle and an 8% barrel rate, what's missing is the, the pop-ups. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so I'm uh, kind of out on Kepler, I think. Entirely too much uh, uh, negativity for my homeboy. 
Well, yeah, I mean, the problem here Los is that Gates. there are so many other players to like, though, like in the same range. Yeah. Like David, David Dahl plays half his games in Coors. He's had a bad injury history. There's no doubt about that. I remember but being, at least he used to steal bases. He used to steal bases. He could steal some again. Babbitt should be inflated by his park. He's been 10% better than league average since arriving in the big leagues in 2016. So, you know, 111 career WRC+. plus. They're going to play him if he's healthy. They have to play him. 297, 346, 521 so far. And that's in broken up seasons where he's spent time on the IL. Yeah. Doesn't have the low K rate that we're, we're looking for from full-on breakout guys. But do you think there's anything in the profile that leads you to believe he can improve in that regard? Or is it what you see is what you get? And fortunately, he's in Colorado, so he's going to get a lot more mileage out of his batted balls. Yeah, I just think it's mostly just needs to stay on the field. I mean, we've seen we've I think we've seen enough, even though it's been broken up into little pieces. I think we've seen enough to 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 believe in, you know, uh, a full seat. Like another projection system will give him a full season because obviously the health issues. But if you if he you know just finally had that full season on the field, uh, I could easily see him hitting 280, 290 with twenty five homers and ten steals. Yeah, which would be more valuable than Kepler. Yeah, I, I think he's so. I think Dahl is kind of like a poor man's Eddie Rosario in terms of the statistical output. I think the park gives him a chance to close that gap, and you're getting him fifty picks later. A little bit younger, so like the Rosario that stole eight bases. Yeah, right. So definitely in on David Dahl. I don't think I'm allowed to talk about Byron Buxton anymore. Uh, I like him. <laughs> I've explained why I like him before. So I don't think there's anything for us to really get after there. I think the big thing for him is just being healthy, you know, just seeing where he's at yeah. as you get closer and closer Volume to drafts. Play. I, I would just zoom out. I, I would actually sort of t- trust the projections at this point. Yes, there could be a breakout where he puts it all together, but what we've just seen is streaks here and there. So it's hard to believe that even as good as 2019 looked like in, in terms of strikeout rate and power uh, and keeping the stolen bases, it's hard to believe that that's his baseline when we've seen in higher volume seasons, like a half season that looked like that, and then a half season that just looked like trash. I mean, I, I think you have to at least entertain the possibility because he's just resuming hitting this week. Like, this is the first time he's taken live batting practice since... Was that shoulder surgery? It was, yeah, since he tore his labrum back oh. in September. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, Ugh. So I think what you have to do, if you're going to draft Byron Buxton in that pick 150 range, he's your only injured player you're drafting. You didn't draft Aaron Judge earlier. You're not going to draft an injured pitcher or some other injured player at some point. He's the one that you get. And the reason you can do it is because the price is low enough where he has so many ways to make value. The play discipline improved last year. The exit velocity improved last year. He's been an efficient base dealer since day one. there's a lot to like there. And because he's burned so many people at higher prices, I understand if you're out, I think this is an appropriate price for someone who can do a lot of things we need at at, at a nice discount. But again, if you say, hey, you know what? I'm out because of the shoulder. That's fine. You could go with Kyle Tucker a couple spots later. I mean, Kyle Tucker's on the board and I waited like like Linus in the pumpkin patch for pretty much all of last season, this you know, for Tucker to show up. Like, this is the no, year. Is it, are we sure it's not uh, the the girl with the with the football? 
<laughs> it's, it's both. Yeah. <laughs> I was both Charlie Brown and Linus when it came yeah. to, uh, to Kyle Tucker. First, I was out in the pumpkin patch with my blanket waiting for the great pumpkin to show up. And then, uh, you know, when Kyle Tucker was on the roster, it, it was Lucy pulling the football away and me <sighs> falling on my arse. So Kyle uh, Tucker had a Kyle Tucker was two home runs away. Well, he had a, he had a 35, 35 season last year to combine. That's pretty sweet. homers and 35 stolen bases. I mean, should we be any Cots less excited? five times out of that 35 against 35 stolen. So here, here's my broad question. Why are we, the collective we, not you and I, why are people less excited about Kyle Tucker having that season, mostly at AAA, than Luis Robert doing it at three levels, including high A and double A? Oh, because you you have the, the um, what's it called? Where you just... Fatigue. The fatigue from 2018 when he came up for 72 plate appearances and struggled. We've been hearing about Kyle Tucker for longer than that. I think we heard about. <sighs> yeah. We started hearing about him in 2017 because he uh, had a, a swing change and the fly ball rate up, went up and the power zoomed. I think we even heard about that late in 2016. I mean, he had, I a, tw- I, he had a 25-21 season in 120 games in 2017 as a 20-year-old at high A and double A. That's when we... that And I think we started hearing about it in 2016 because uh, he showed some power in, in A ball. And I think in 2017, he went to the Fall Stars game and I interviewed him. And then in 2018, he got no playing time in the major leagues and had a 24-20 season with 332 average in the minor leagues. And so we've been hearing about him basically for three years. Yeah. So it's fatigue. That's it. And and now it I seems... That, I mean, yes. And then also obviously playing time risk. But at this point, uh, Josh Bludick is not necessarily going uh, to keep us uh, waiting too long, I don't think. <laughs> oh. Blue being the key word, actually, here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I have to give my man Grant Brisby the, all the credit on that one. That was I stole that joke. Grant's funny. Yeah, uh, man. But I like honestly, uh, someone will get hurt, and Kyle Tucker will be playing really soon. And they might just play him over Josh Reddick uh, outright. Right. Red, red, not blue. It will always that, that that's gonna be in my. I will never forget that <laughs> joke ever. <laughs> Especially if Reddick was really uh, benefiting from any sign stealing stuff. I mean, he was. Uh, he has not been above league average with the bat or with the glove since 2017. Just that's just the kind of player that becomes a a bench player really easily. Do the right thing, Dusty. Yeah. Do the right thing. Uh, some other interesting outfielders in this range. We're probably gonna have to split this into. A little bit of Thursday's episode, maybe not all we of it. Do like late, late outfielder of Palooza. Yeah, we'll do late outfielder. We'll get through the end of the top two hundred on today's show because we're pretty close to closing that out. JD Davis, playing time concerns, spring injury. Like the player, I think I'm just out right now. ADP around one seventy three. Uh, Willie Calhoun, the jaw injury. I'm out on him for obvious reasons. How about some old vets to like in their place? I feel like Justin Upton and Hunter Renfro. Super cheap, you know. People see the flaws, and instead of seeing the the possibility of of good, you know, they can't they can't platoon every situation in Tampa. We should have T shirts made to say that. And thank you, by the way, for I think at least one listener submitted a, a stuffest T shirt idea. 
Uh, yeah. that, that's an open call. Like, and, and if we if we get something that looks amazing, we'll try to find a way to have it made. Uh, so if you want to make a stuffist T-shirt, you know, fire those our way on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, Justin Upton, right around that pick 200 mark. Why not? Like the counting stats should all be there. You're not worried about playing time as long as that knee is healthy. And I think by most indications, he's having a pretty normal spring training, right? Have you seen anything yeah. that would lead you he's to believe playing. he's been limited? I mean, he debuted back in late February. So it wasn't like they had to slow play him this spring. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I don't think I'd predict more than three to five stolen bases. So he's not really useful there anymore. But in terms of power, 25 to 30, why not? He's done it forever. Pre-Rabbit Ball, three consecutive 30 home run seasons from 16 to 18, mostly in like pitcher-friendly environments. At least 80 runs scored in all those seasons. At least 85 RBIs. And you're probably going to get a 250 or so batting average. Like That's not that off from what we were just talking about with Fran Mil Reyes and Kyle Schwarber and a bunch of guys that we like 70 picks earlier. So Justin Upton really, at that price is a no-brainer. He's really streaky, and I've talked to him a little bit about it, and he's you know trying everything he can to, to not be a streak. And I think he's been a little bit less streaky in recent seasons. But in treat, in, 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 in leagues that allow trades, like, there's always a chance that his hot streak comes early, and you buy him so late that you create yourself an extra outfielder that you can trade later. Yeah. That could absolutely give you that depth that you need. Because if he if he comes out the gate hitting 280, you know, with like 10 homers uh, in the first couple of months, like you, he could have pretty good value because people would be like, oh, he's just back to being regular Justin Upton. We should have one uh, would you rather inside the top 200 because these players, I think, have pretty... Would you rather? It's good. That's a good one. That's a clean, clean would you rather. I think I'm going to have to put that one in the, the drops folder, even though we don't use a lot of drops here yet. Uh, Brian Reynolds or Lorenzo Cain? I think expectations, categorically speaking, for those players are pretty similar. I mean, you have Cain in a more hitter-friendly environment. Reynolds has youth on his side. Uh, maybe Cain moves around in the lineup a little bit. I think it kind of depends on how much Eric Sogard plays for the Brewers because he's a bit of an OBP machine. He's a lefty, so they could shuffle some things around. But Reynolds versus Cain, you're looking for some average. You're looking for some cheap bags near the back of the top 200. Who do you like better for this season? I like oh, Reynolds' barrel rate is not very good. I don't think he's a very good player. I mean, I think he's a he's kind of like a solid regular. I, I'm very skeptical of Brian Reynolds. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I like you know. You might look. You might look at his track record and say, oh, you know, five forty six plate appearances. He's young. He's ready to go. He's twenty five. Not that young. Not that young. And if if last year was pretty close to his peak, it's almost like Kevin Newman. It's like Kevin Newman debuted at what? 24? No, older. He's older? 26. Ooh. So these guys debuted at their peak ages. And so we say, oh, 314, he's got room to grow. He'll do more of everything. Uh, not necessarily. Yeah. He's right there in his peak range. He all the projections actually have him regressing, and that's partially maybe because his barrel rates and and exit velocities and certain underlying power metrics aren't amazing, uh, or just because his minor league power wasn't actually that amazing either. So if he regresses in the power thing, it doesn't give me more stolen bases. I mean, the most likely outcome for him is like two eighty, you know, rabbit ball, two eighty, twenty homers, five stolen bases. Yeah. And, yeah. Um. I can see taking in a keeper league. You want that, obviously. Take him in a keeper league over Kane, but as much as Kane was hurt 
and you know had I think he had off season surgery, and he's thirty three. Like I think he's got to steal at least ten bags. I I'm hoping for fifteen out of him, and if he goes two eighty. 15-15, he's worth more than Brian Reynolds. So Lorenzo Kane actually hits the ball harder than people realize. He's averaged at least 89 miles per hour in terms of average exit velocity each of the last three seasons. He did play hurt frequently last year, like just banged up all the time. He'd start to recover from an injury and then follow the ball off his ankle. It was uh, it was like that stupid video that was going around with the, the goalie who kept getting demolished in the PK a few years ago. It was like kind of a fake video, right? Where... Somehow he keeps getting up and he just gets hurt again, but he keeps making saves, so they keep leaving him in there. Kind of like that. And Kane, because the defense was so good, continued to push himself through it, kept earning the playing time, still hit 11 homers and stole 18 bases with a 260 average. That's about as bad as it can get for him when he's playing. I don't think you're getting a whole lot more in terms of power. I think he can quietly get back up to 25 bags. I think the average is going to come in closer to 290. I, yeah, I, because he he he's the kind of player that his barrel rate's not good, but it actually is good for him because he's playing it closer to his max exit velocity. So he's getting the most out of his batted balls. That's why he has the Babips for you know until last year we were all you know from three eighty to three fifty in five in five straight years. So if there's any sort of health uptick, then that Babips going to go up, the batting average is going to go up, and he's going to make the most out of his skill set, even though it doesn't have a great barrel rate. Like I'm, we're not buying him for the things. I'm just a little bit worried that there could be a kind of precipitous drop off in steals. I think he's probably. I mean, is is Lorenzo Cain's speed any more risky than Elvis Andrews' speed to go across positions for a second? Because Andrews goes. 50 picks earlier and we talked about how deep shortstop is and with Andrews I think he's a little younger than Kane man he's been around forever he's only 31 so he's a couple years younger doesn't hit the balls hard so you're less likely to get the power but is there really that much more risk with Kane's stolen base total than there is with Elvis Andrews's stolen base total you'd think they'd also have learned some tricks about how to steal bases that doesn't rely completely on being a burner at this point you know he's stolen so many bases sometimes he just knows when to pick his moment he's in the 72nd percentile rank last year but in 2018 he was 86 so i think it's fair to think that maybe he could bounce back to 80th percentile rank in the league you know with better health he's the third fastest for his age which i think is a funny thing to track (laughs) yeah well i mean andrews is in the 46th percentile in sprint speed which is way lower than i would have expected he was 31 for 39 as a base dealer last year you know, we know sprint speed doesn't perfectly sync up with steals, like, but that's a that's a lot lower than you'd expect for Aldis Andrews. Yeah, and there's there's at this point the league is not emphasizing defensively with catchers the ability to, to stop the running game. No, I mean we're seeing or the way catchers the, are setting up is different too. Like we're seeing yeah, a lot of oh, catchers yeah. on see a guy one with leg. A knee out like that, you're ready to run. Yeah, and I think there's going to be especially like savvy veteran players who've always stolen bases. Yeah. They're going to take they're going to take those bags because. That's just that's in their DNA. That's what those players have been doing for their whole career. All right. So the the nineteens and seventeens I see for projections for Kane for stolen bases seem a little high, but I'll put the over under around fifteen. I think that's a fair place to set the number because of the age, but he'd be one you'd of the few players the I would bet the over on that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it can go wrong because of all the the bumps well, I took and bruises. A chance. I traded Kevin Newman for Lorenzo Kane in a in a dynasty league. 
I think that was a smart trade. I don't think Kevin Newman has a whole lot more he can do for us. I think Lorenzo no, Cain sure. might I think have a actually few his seasons. 16 stone bases in his first year might be his career high. Classic DVR Brewers homerism, though, uh, yet again <laughs> on this episode of Rates and Barrels. Send your complaints and your compliments and your questions to ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. Be sure to spell out the word and if you want to go the email route. If you want to send us a tweet, you can find Eno on Twitter at Enoceris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. It would be wrong of me to sign off without saying that we have two other fantasy baseball podcasts that you should be listening to, Fantasy Baseball in 15. That's every morning. Al Melkier, Michael Beller, and I host that show, 6 a.m. Eastern. New episodes drop every weekday. And the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast that drops opposite this show, plus bonus episodes of that show with some of our MLB beat writers as well. Michael Beller heading that up, talking to the beat writers about some position battles. So more content than you can shake a stick at, you know. You ever shake a stick at something? Uh, you're no, 40 I do like those old timey expressions <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, we, we do have a, a soft spot in our hearts for the, the old time expressions but that is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels we'll have a little more outfield talk on our next episodes we are back with you on Thursday thanks for listening <laughs>